Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, From Crisis to Connection. Each week on this podcast, my guests and I will give you and your loved ones resources and tools to heal from the crises of infidelity, pornography, abusive behaviors, and betrayal trauma. But we also talk about how to build and maintain healthy connection in your most important relationships. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. Families can be one of the biggest supporters in healing from addiction and trauma. And families can also be one of the biggest challenges in healing from addiction and trauma. And so today I brought on the podcast some great people, Danny and Emily Deaton, who are the founders of Living Proof Recovery Services. And and they have done some incredible work in really digging in and teaching families how to help and not harm their loved one in the addiction recovery process. Now, Danny's experience certainly does involve some sexual betrayal, but the bulk of what his story surrounds is his journey from a years-long addiction to drugs and alcohol. And he'll tell his story, and it is really incredible what he's come back from. And he's got 15 years sober, and he's working to help hundreds, thousands of people all over the world heal from the impact of addiction, but mostly they work with families to help families learn how to be a resource and not a hindrance. And so this episode is really centered on helping families understand what they can do to be a resource, to get out of the way of making things harder, and to really understand how to leverage their unique strengths and face reality and really serve as a resource and a tool to help their loved one overcome addiction. As you listen, you may be wondering, well, my loved one doesn't really struggle with drugs and alcohol. They didn't really go down as far as Danny went. And what are we really supposed to do with this? Because it's kind of private and secretive and I don't really know what to do. Hang in there. Listen to the whole thing. We get into that. We talk about at the end of the interview, some of the parallels between pornography and sexual addiction, sexual betrayal, because there's so much overlap. There's so much that goes on in this process that that applies to almost every single compulsive or addictive behavior, secrecy, hiding, enabling, all those things. So Danny and Emily have some great insights and some great resources as well on their website. And I'll put links to all of that in the show notes, but I'm really excited to share their story with you and give you a little bit of a peek into what it really takes to help families be healthy. Let me share a little bit about their background and then we'll jump into the interview. So Danny used to be homeless and he was also incarcerated as a drug addict but he's now a husband and father of three and over 14 years clean and sober. He's the founder and owner of Living Proof Recovery Services, a company whose mission is to save families who are losing the battle of addiction inside their home. He and his wife also host the Your Living Proof podcast, and uh, they've produced workbooks and online courses for individuals and families who need support in understanding their role in their loved one's recovery. And Danny's passion and love for life is indisputable when he shares his motto, our secrets keep us sick. And he speaks to schools, communities, families all over the country. 
And he and his wife, Emily, have three children and they live in the mountains of Northern Utah. And again, I'll put links to all their information in, in the show notes. But let's dive in, guys, to my interview with Danny and Emily Deaton. Well, Danny and Emily, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. So I'd love for my audience to get to know you guys just for a little bit in terms of some context, some background as we start talking about families supporting those in addiction. And I know that Danny, like your whole mission is to, is to let people know that you get it. And so tell us your story. Tell us a little bit about you guys. Well, first of all, we each individually had an entire lifetime of, of a journey before we met one another, different obstacles we faced, different challenges we faced. But when we met one another, we had both been through quite a few things, different things, but yet real traumatic events in life obviously created a few complications and difficulties, some obstacles overcome, but really the sustenance and, and the depth of our relationship started off on, on a good note because of what we'd been through. Just to give a little background, a little, <clears throat> a brief background on myself. I'm, I'm a Utah boy, Utah native. My wife, she's, she's not, she's back from St. Louis, but I grew up here in Utah. I loved life as a boy. People often refer to their childhood as this like storybook life that they have. And that was truly the definition of my life. My dad was my best friend. He coached all my sports teams. I had resource and access to try new things. I just loved life. I had a big group of friends. I loved school. I just loved being active. And pretty much every day I woke up and it was like, this is the best day ever. Wow. And I enjoyed the beautiful aspects of Utah, mm -hmm. all the mountains, the lakes, the different places to adventure. Kind of just to, to summarize this more quickly. And I didn't even recognize this growing up. But when I look back, I can, I can see clearly when this transpired. But you know, as I was becoming a young man and young boy, whatever you want to call it, I started recognizing things. I started kind of sizing myself up with different men and guys and people my age and looking at their height and their muscles and what they drove and maybe the yeah. sizes of their house. And mm -hmm. I started noticing that like some of the people who were perceived to be important or cool or awesome were those guys that had X, Y, and Z. So as a young boy, I'm starting trying to figure out how to do this. And in my own, my own house, right? My father became extremely successful. But what people don't know is he came from Carbon County, Price, Utah, coal mining town. He came from nothing. When I was born, he was extremely poor, starting his business. And yes, he ended up having and growing this enormous company and had a lot of success. So I was also comparing myself to that, right? Watching this journey unfold, watching him really <laughs> to do the impossible. Now, I knew because the way he parented, that was never what was most important. He always emphasized the, the journey, enjoying the journey. And there was no value in, in monetary things, financial things. But as a young boy, you're still looking at all this and trying to figure it out. So <laughs> I look back and in my life, you know, I didn't recognize it at the time, but when, when these pressures became too much, I started out with these little lies, right? Hmm. Little lies. Hmm. And I would tell people, maybe I had a more important role at my job than I really did. Maybe I made a little bit more money than I did, or my car was a few years newer than it really was just because I felt like that was how you had to come across to measure up to society standards. So that happened. And actually over time, not being able to recognize it, it started to create this un a pressure that was unbearable. Oh yeah. And it was really affecting me. And it started to make me worried, concerned. And, and I didn't even know as a young man that that was happening. So 
as a young boy, we all run into different challenges, right? I had a group of friends and was introduced to drugs and alcohol at a pretty young age. And this was the time of my life when I entered that situation, excited, right? Ooh, this is exciting. I can see people are talking about it. It seems really fun. But I'm also understanding because of the way I was raised and my morals and beliefs that this was wrong. Well, looking back, the very second that alcohol touched my lips or the very second, the first time marijuana was smoked, yes, I knew I was doing something wrong, but almost instantly those feelings I had, that discomfort that I was unable to process at the time or even not recognize was gone. I was free. Mm. I was who I wanted to be. I felt the way I, I always wanted to feel the free in charge, fearless, powerful. So that's where it started and it, and it continued. So I went down a rabbit hole and was partying with friends and doing things I shouldn't eventually after high school, rather than preparing to go on a mission, which was what most people my age did in our community that we grew up in. Some friends and I took off to Hawaii. We're like, you know what? Let's just go become professional surfers. Let's go down here and live the life, meet girls from around the world. Sound like paradise. So we did it. And and actually that's what we did. And we were surfing and working and doing all that. And, you know, about a year into it, there was a moment that I had, I was laying down in, in Hana on black sand beach. And I remember looking up at the moon and felt like this, the light from that moon was going right through me. Hmm. I was hollow. I was empty. Oh, wow. I had nothing. So it was, I picked myself at that moment, came back home, prepared myself to get my life together. I went and served a mission. I came home. I got married. I went to college and did really well. But during that time, I had had some injuries, some nagging injuries that were affecting me. And there was a moment in my life when a friend had introduced me to something called Oxycontin. Okay. Now my life had been had transformed. I was newly focused in my life, doing the right things, but it just came in my life at the most optimal time, Mm -hmm. the optimal time for it to have an effect on me. And I look back and it was literally came to a specific moment in my life where I was broken down. I had other challenges. I was facing some pressures in life. My back was killing me. My neck was killing me. And so when this was introduced, I said, okay, I'm just doing it for this physical pain. Mm Mm-hmm. That was the game-changing moment of my life. Everything I had done prior to that, younger in high school, partying, you know, doing certain things was more harmless. I kind of look back and think of it that way. The very moment that that poison was introduced to me in the form of an Oxycontin, Mm. it took me to a dark place. And it, it, and it, it happened quickly. Wow. You know, I remember the very first time, if people aren't familiar with this, like you take a, an Oxycontin is like the size of a Smarty, right? And if you broke that in half, you know, you have this little tiny piece. And then if you broke that other half in half, you're now looking at something you can barely hold on to. And I took that, you know, you just crushed it up and you kind of snort up your nose or swallow it. That was so powerful that within seconds, I was outside of his car throwing up on the ground. Just that quarter. Just that quarter. Wow. Very second that, you know, the, the nausea went away. I experienced this euphoria that was quite simply the most amazing thing I'd ever felt. Mm. I mean, it's w- what I felt like maybe one day we'll feel when this, the, the sky parts and angels start blowing their trumpets and we're all called home that it was that incredible. So what I tried to do was manage it right here. I was graduated from college, starting a business, ready to take my life on. And I was like, okay, I just got to make sure and use the right amount to take care of this pain. Well, things slowly progressed and then things quickly progressed. Mm. 
the problem that we have, there's an opioid epidemic that's been in our country forever is it's different than some of these other drugs, because if you take that quarter, I talked about, if you want that same feeling, even the next day or 48 hours later, you have to take a half. And then if you want that same feeling the next day or the day after, you're going to have to take three quarters. So before you know it, I went from having a quarter of it that almost made me pass out and throw up to chewing up five or six, just so I could get out of bed in the morning. Wow. Taking 30 a day, Hmm. 40 a day. So things progressed. My life unraveled quickly and I won't bore you with all the details, but I'd like to summarize it by saying, you know, eventually what that did was destroy my life. Yep. It isolated me from everything and everyone. I became isolated from God, from my family. I became homeless. I started buying illicit drugs. I started buying drugs off the street illegally. And before you know it, here I am, this return missionary, Eagle Scout, piano playing boy from Utah who had multiple felony possessions, locked up behind bars and facing a very long and difficult road. You know, there's a story on our website that we had made and there was actually a pivotal moment. It was, it was kind of crazy. And this will be the last part is I got down to a very low point where, you know, I found out it's illegal to sleep in a storage unit. If you didn't know that you can't sleep in your storage (laughs) unit. Well, I did not know that actually. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. If you've seen storage wars where they click the lock and they open it up and everybody's like, yeah, well then they did that to mine because they were there to repossess all my things. Um, I was asleep in there. Like I was just, I had been in there for days and days. I didn't even know. And that was a humbling experience, but there were more. And it led to the point where I was sleeping in my car. And then a friend and I tried to rob the drug dealers one night because we had nothing left speeding around in a neighborhood. I was so sick. I was laying back in the passenger seat with my feet up on the dash. My friend hit a parked car going about 35 miles an hour. It pushed me through the windshield over the hood onto the ground of the car in front. And since my feet were up on the dash, it broke both my ankles. (sighs) He scooped me up off the ground. How we made it home without getting arrested. I don't know. We had no windshield. Our car was crushed. Drugs all over in the car, paraphernalia. He drove me back to the house where he was staying. He took me in the basement and left me there. I was there for longer than a person should be able to survive without water. I was there for longer than a person should be able to survive in the conditions I was in. And there was this moment where my father and my brother walked in that room. They had previously both had a dream that they were speaking at my funeral. When they found this out, they went on a search for me all day. They ran into this certain friend at a gas station. He told them where I was. They walked in that basement and it was the first time I'd seen light in several days. And I remember when that door opened and that light came across the floor in walks these two people. And I look up and it's my dad and my brother. It was a very sobering experience. It was, I don't know if I've ever felt more exposed, ashamed, or vulnerable in my life. My dad looked down at me and he said, I've made peace with God. I've learned someone taught me what it's going to take. I know that I'm ready to help you, but I know that it's going to require your desire He looked at me, I turned my head and hid from him and he walked away. My brother reached down screaming, this is your last chance. You're going to die. What are you doing? He walked away. And as my brother was walking away, I just had this moment and I had enough energy. I just yelled out help. And my brother turned around, picked me up, scooped me off the ground like a baby. I weighed 90 something pounds at the time, put me in my dad's car, took me up, give my mom a hug. And then they took me to the university of Utah where I began my medical detox. Now, That was almost 15 years ago. I can still remember parts of it like it was yesterday. And there's other parts of it that feel like a dream. So during these last 15 years, well, 
I've had that chance, the chance to tell that story to a lot of people. And I can tell you what happened every time I did, it blew my mind for every one or two people that kind of looked at me like, Oh my gosh, this guy's crazy. Keep our kids away from him. I noticed that there was about 10 times the amount of people who would gravitate towards me and ask me, Oh my gosh, my daughter, this, 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 my husband, this, 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 oh, my nephew, this, this, this. So I spent a lot of years helping people when and where I could. It was part of giving back. A few years in, I had met my wife and a year into recovery. And within two years, we took a mighty leap of faith and we invested in some restaurants and we were newly married. I was new in recovery and we were millions of dollars in debt with these restaurants, managing 75 to 80 employees at a time. And that's the adventure we had for about a decade. And it was incredible. It taught us a lot of lessons. It helped us. But years ago, we looked and I, and you know, we, we both know very well, I just wasn't fulfilled. I wasn't happy. I was making money, but I just wasn't happy. So we got out of the restaurants. I went, got licensed and certified as an interventionist. And I determined that my life was going to be meant trying to help other people. We built a company, we've created resources and my wife, obviously any, any guy that wants to claim that they are to be, they're supposed to have credit for the things they're doing in their life. If they're married, they know that's a bunch of baloney, right? She's the mastermind about 80% of everything beautiful (laughs) important in our life is her creations and her doing. So we've done this together. She's also experienced some things on her own that help, but that's it. I mean, that's kind of where it's at. And so we do this full time and yes, I can relate to these people. I can help these individuals because I've been there. Mm -hmm. Very few of them have gone further down that hole than I did. So they can't tell me, I don't know. They can't tell me I don't understand. And it's been powerful to also go and learn and be educated and give myself the tools to be able to help the family understand what they're going through so that they can see both sides. Right. That's it, man. That's probably it gave people a little bit more than they wanted, but that's the summary. That's your story, man. And I, I'm so glad you got out of the restaurant business. (laughs) You know, I, I, I joke with people all the time. I say, I think the only thing harder than overcoming a heroin, cocaine addiction, porn addiction is owning and operating restaurants. So (laughs) all the foodies out there, kudos to you because you are doing, I've searched for the hardest things in life and that was it. Oh my goodness. It it was tough. (laughs) You know? Oh, no. Thank you for sharing that. I, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredible story and you know, you're right. You don't get much lower than that. Right. Like it, and it's, it's incredible. You came back from that. It's just visually in my mind as I was imagining this scene of, of you and your brother scooping you up and where you're at. I mean, I just, it just breaks my heart as a dad, imagining my own kids doing that and having to face that. I mean, it's just, just so difficult. So I love that we're talking about it on this side of it and that you're blessing so many lives. Emily, is there anything that you want to share as far as, you know, your story or tie into this at all before we jump into this discussion? No, I just, well, I just know that I'm grateful to be married to somebody that's willing to share his unspeakable things. And I actually think that's why we connect. We always connected so well is I had experienced quite a bit of trauma before we were ever married. And I was able to open up to him about that because I knew what he had gone through as well. Mm -hmm. And not only that he had experienced that darkness, but that he was capable of doing what was required to step out of it. It wasn't just like I overcame an addiction. It was, 
I'm actively becoming who I want to be and who I know I am. Beautiful. And I, that is kind of our mission just with living proof. We want to help people understand it doesn't really matter where you're starting from. You, your possibilities are endless if you're willing to do the things it's going to take. I have to share one thing. When I met her dad, it was a really, woo, and I'll never forget it. I, I was shaking in my boots. I was like more nervous about that than getting beat up by guards in jail and cellmates and being felt like a little puppy in a lion's cage was meeting her dad. And <laughs> here he was, he was the president of a, one of the most recognized hospitals in the country. He was a stake president in his service calling for his church, for our church. And he had eight children. And I just looked at him like, oh my gosh, like this is like next to the president of the United States. And I'm flying over to introduce myself the first time. And I'm just going to have to tell him that I got out of jail just over a year ago. I'm still working to get off probation. I can't have anything more than butter knives in my kitchen. He's like, I have five daughters. You have nothing. No. Nothing so can scare me. This is, I'm telling him my story and I'm, I'm sweating through my clothes. Like I'm shaking, but I was trying to explain to him about who I am and what I'm trying to do now and what I've learned and how much I love his daughter. And that experience was incredible because I'm just going, you know, if I was a dad, I might just come over and knock your, knock your teeth in and tell you to get out of my house. But he walked over and he put his arm on, on my on hand on my shoulder. And he looked at me and he said, you know, it brings me a lot of comfort as a father to know that a man like yourself has experienced something extremely hard and you fought your way through it and you're doing what's required to get healthy. He's like, that wow. just gives me a lot of confidence because I know that my daughter will be safe with someone like that. And I was just like, yeah. Oh my God. And you know, I didn't even recognize the wisdom in, in that until later on, but that was the process. And, and yep. you know, it didn't come easily also because of the trauma we'd both been through. She had been, she had redeemed her life and was becoming her best self, but there was still obstacles to overcome. It's like you say crisis to connection. That process is not an easy one. No. <laughs> Cause she told me when we met, First of all, I'm not changing my last name. I've already done that. If you want me, you're going to change your last name. Second of all, I have my own bank account and money. I don't need you. I need you to understand that. I may want you or I may enjoy you, but I don't need you. So I'll have my own bank account. And I was going, oh, wow. I mean, part of that was turning me on the way she was talking. But second of all, I was like, wait, you don't need me? What is my, <laughs> what, 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 what purpose do I have? But she had a few walls up really that were like, you know, don't mess with me. Oh my so, gosh. <laughs> we had to break those walls down over time, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah no, you're exactly right. <laughs> the journey, uh, so many of the couples and the people that I interview and talk with, by the time they they get in front of, you know, my audience, they're kind of more in the connection stage. And so a lot of people, you know, it, it can almost feel like that they're out of touch or they don't really, you know, that that somehow you just poof, end up here. But I yeah. hear the journey. I mean, you're saying 15 years, right? And then even that first year of, of meeting her dad. And by the way, what a, what a courageous, good person he is to really like embrace this. My goodness, that would be so, like you said, like it just completely flies in the face of reason, but he obviously understood something much deeper, but that journey of going from, from this total train wreck of a life to building something powerful and beautiful and, and stable. Yeah. It's done step-by-step. It's based on principles. It's totally doable. And I love that you guys not only teach people how to do it, but you're living it. It's just amazing. Yeah. It's well, amazing. Thank you. It's helped us as we've faced the same challenges everybody does. You yeah. know, you have 
challenges with your children, your marriage, health, financial stuff. That's right. Because of what we've been through and the hell that we both endured. When we face those challenges, we, we do it. It's almost like it brings us together. Yeah. Like we know how to do this. We've been through these difficult times and we both dig our heels in, humble ourselves, ask for the, the Lord's help. And we're willing to do it together instead of working against each other. I love it. Is that a fair assessment? Very Beautiful fair. blondie? Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Let's talk about families. You know, you, you obviously talked about your own father and, and her father as, as, you know, clearly key people in this process for you guys terms of supporting, but what are ways, you know, a lot of my audience, of course, are people that are going through some form of betrayal or working through their own addiction recovery process. So much of it is around sexual issues. And then you've got a lot of parents that are listening and leaders and other people that are trying to help. And sometimes families and loved ones can be super helpful and sometimes they can actually make things harder. Yeah. And so what have you guys seen? What, what helps, what harms? Like, Walk me through that. What have you guys observed in your own experience? And then, of course, with the families you guys have served? Well, actually, I think the families a lot of time want to be helpful, but they have no idea how to be helpful. Yeah. So they just kind of create a template for how they react to what's happening. And they stay stuck in that for years. I mean, I, it takes a tremendous amount of effort to convince families what you're doing is not actually working. It's not helping anything. And that that's actually exactly why we created living proof recovery services wasn't to treat the addict, but really to help the family understand their role in recovery, what that looks like, how they can actually affect the outcome. Because like I said, they'll get stuck just kind of in this pattern of, well, hoping, praying, you know, Waiting, waiting for them to choose something different and years and years go by and nothing. No, it's just literally being stuck in one place. Everyone progressively gets worse. When I went to treatment long time ago, one of the common statistics used in treatment centers throughout the country was the thirds, right? A third of people in recovery, sorry, a third of people will go and get help. They will change and alter the course of their life. They will enter recovery. The other third will continue to fail going through different institutions and treatment centers or jail. They'll just kind of be like repeat customers. The other third will die. That was what you heard all the time. Now, flash forward, you know, 14 and a half years later. And listen, statistics are what you make them. You can look at different places and find different numbers. True, true. One of the most common used statistics nowadays, according to the CDC, and don't get me started on that, but is 93% of people fail. 93% of people with addictions, sex addictions, drug addictions, alcohol, they fail to recover. Now that is a dismal percentage. Yeah. Defeating almost from the very beginning. Years ago, when we started Living Proof, I used the mastermind, my wife's brains, and we sat down and we literally went into this like thinking tank. And we did a lot of research, analyzed a lot of different things and said, how are we going to make a dent? How are we going to just slide our way in and make an impact in this enormous problem. What can we do? I had the chance because of a really good friend of mine. My wife laughs because two of my best friends are very old. They're in their (laughs) eighties, but I'll tell you what, boys, if you want to become your best self, surround yourself with people you want to become. And this gentleman introduced me to the former Senator Hatch, Orrin Hatch. He was big on this opioid deal, right? So he mm-hmm. had a few opioid symposiums. I got to be a fly on the wall in several different events, banquets, 
big things with IHC, all sorts of different places. And I just sat and observed something. Here in Utah, in the state where I live, for example, let me just start here. There are over 52 treatment centers. They range everything from youth wilderness survival camps all the way up to the nicest, most luxurious places. That's a lot of resources. There are a lot of different organizations, groups, churches who, are, who have funds to help people get treatment that can't afford it. In the state of Utah, we're actually behind the national curve, and that is less than 10% of people here ever seek help, right? We're not talking about people recover, but less than 10% of people ever go to a place. I don't even care what it is. They go to a place to get help. That's low. Wow. No one's even trying. They're just staying stuck. So we sat there and we said, well, why? What the hell is going on? How come nobody's getting help when this problem is, is obvious? So we looked, and like you just stated, Jeff, here in a, in a state where we have a lot of, it's an awesome, it's a family-oriented place, God-fearing people, good people families who want to help. How come we are so terrible at this? Well, it's because at times the family, no matter how incredible your family is, can actually hinder the process because they just don't understand it. Why in the world would any mother or father or family dynamic understand how to deal with someone who's addicted to, to meth or to pornography or to alcohol if they had not themselves experienced it? Why would they be a master at that? It's like having a child born with autism. You wouldn't know what to do the very first day. So what would you do? You'd go learn. You would educate yourself, gain the resources and tools you need to help support your loved one. So we looked and we said, well, none of these families understand what to do. They want to help. But I can tell you right now, the reason why, and I won't claim this to be a fact, but based upon my own personal experience, having shed tears with hundreds of people, worked with young men behind plexiglass, visited peace people in hospital beds, fighting for their life from addictions, I'll tell you right now, the only people who have a chance are those who have a family that can help them. Hmm. Once they turn that corner, once they take that leap of faith and try to get healthy, because everyone else without a family is looking at criminal charges, financial implications. They have no job. Here they are broken. They're about to lose their house. Maybe their dad's an alcoholic. Their parents are torn apart. It makes it extremely difficult. Well, and it's also a skill set that no one has, right? Because why would you know what the steps would be if you even had your child or husband that was like, yes, I need help. Okay. What do we do? How does this work? You know? And that's why it's so interesting how many people try to just do it alone. Just be like, well, I talked to my neighbor. They know somebody that went to this facility. We'll just go there. There's not a lot of education or understanding on what the process is. Is this just a 28 day Hey, I just, I got them in. They're going to go into this facility. They're going to get fixed. They're going to come out. Hopefully everything's going to be fine again. We can move on with our lives. Right. It's just not reality. That's just not how it actually works. And how would you know that until you're in the middle of that storm going, this isn't working. So in a lot of ways, no like the, the sort of the family's intention of thinking they're being helpful by maybe not making that person feel bad or just minimizing the issue or kind of doing oh, it, yeah. know, kind of the do it yourself thing. Like we, we know we're good people. We, we have resources. Let's just, you know, we'll rally, whatever, like all of that in some way sends the wrong message and ends up just leaving people totally, you know, stripped of any actual help. Yep. Oh, absolutely. And I, that's where I feel like our culture actually hinders us mm. in, in this specific Be because thing. Yeah. Yeah. You feel like, well, this is a moral issue. If they would just stop doing these bad things, right. Then they would have a chance, but they won't stop. 
and it's so far past good and bad. This is, this is no longer a cognitive decision that this person is making. They, they can't access that anymore. They are an active addiction. There is no right or wrong here. This person needs actual help. No amount of prayer is a good thing to do to support you yourself emotionally through this process, but it's not going to change. Yeah. You can't pray your loved one out you know, your loved one's mind. And so there's a lot of inaction because they're just kind of waiting and hoping because they say their prayers and they, they go to church that something will change. So what are the, and I'm what, not, yeah. So what are some of the active things then? Like when you're, when you're talking to families and you're like, if you want to be helpful, you know, do this or don't do this. What are some of the, the basics that you see are kind of yeah. eye openers for a lot of these families? Well, Really, to give you the best answer, we, we spent an entire year putting together with several people helping us and resources. We put together some online courses that walk families through this. It's a simple process. It's relatable. It's easily understood. A lot of it, I'm able to tell them through their loved one's eyes. It just walks them through the process of what's going on. Why are you not having an impact? What can you do differently and to change that outcome? Right? Because mm-hmm. there's nothing guaranteed in this. Addiction doesn't play by the rules. But in these courses, I'll tell you, it's the first time it's been explained to someone in a very clear, simple way from someone who's been there telling them, hey, I've been there. I've been your son. I've been your husband. I needed help, but no one could get through to me. And it's like I told you in that story, when my father found me in that basement, he made that ultimate decision, told me he'd made peace with God because someone had helped him understand it. That doesn't go without saying that for a long time, he was my ultimate enabler. He had such a heart that even when my mom wouldn't let me around, he would put a couple dollars in an envelope and hide it under the front mat because I called and told him I was cold and hungry, right? It took him getting help to be able to draw that line, to understand those difficult choices that had to be made, but also how to put together a plan to help him. And I would say that the number one component in that is helping families understand it's not just one of you understanding yeah. this. It's all of you because so recovery true. will come as a family. If all of you except one person are willing to do all of the things it will require, then nothing will happen because the addict is able to manipulate that one person for what they need. So no change will occur. And so it's really helping families understand their role and, and how powerful it is when they work together even if they don't agree yeah. on, you know, they should just knock this off or they should be able to do this on their own, or we've already paid too much. And I don't want to, if they can set those things aside and collaborate in unity towards recovery for this one person and all act the same way, it changes everything. Even in my own individual life, I've heard this same story hundreds of times, and I'm not exaggerating where good Christian people, awesome contributing members to society have a son or a daughter in their basement who's shooting meth or heroin or is face down drunk from alcohol, finding them unconscious at 29, 32, 34 years of age, right? Mm -hmm. They've now lowered their standards because of their loved one and allowing this to happen. And they're stuck. Mm -hmm. It's been this progression, right? It started, it didn't start there, but it ended up there. And they're literally stuck, fearful of certain things. So it's coming and giving them the tools because no parent can just kick their daughter out or their son out or their spouse out, lock them out, call the police, get a restraining order. That's impossible. They're all scared that ultimately they're going to die. 
But when you teach a family, hey, okay, we're going to stop the nonsense and we're going to create this plan, a very specific plan to help your loved one. That plan's going to give you the power to make those hard decisions. Maybe you do tell them they have to leave. Maybe you call the cops and have them removed. Well, you didn't abandon them because you have already offered them that lifeline. You've given them a piece of paper listed out of all the ways that they're going to get healthy and the ways you're going to help and support them financially, emotionally, everything. Then you do the hard things because they know that there's a lifeline. There's a path back home. And it, it sounds simple, but it, it requires help. Someone helping you put that through together so you can make those difficult choices and stop the insanity. That's what we're passionate about doing and helping people. You know, I'm not here to cure anyone's addiction. There's no treatment center that can cure the addiction. I'm just trying to help people get started. Let's get out of this hole and let's take one foot forward so we can start to get momentum. I mean, even though I recognize that a family to walk through this process, there's not going to be one or two answers you can give on a podcast about how to do this process. But the overarching principle that I'm hearing over and over is for families to really step into or wake up to this reality that they could be the kindest, most loving, most Christ-like people on the planet. And they can be completely one of the biggest parts of the problem here. Like that yep. they can yes. be totally making their own nightmare even worse just by lack of education, lack of boundaries, lack of planning. There's just mm -hmm. so many things that have to go into place. And obviously like the higher the stakes in terms of health and safety and all these other things, legal stuff, then the more paralyzed I'm sure people become without any kind of a plan. Yep. Um, Absolutely. When we're dealing with issues like, I mean, so many people that I work with, I don't work a lot with drugs and alcohol issues, but I do work a lot with people that are struggling with pornography or with sexual acting out or, you know, overspending, overeating. I mean, all, all these kind of process addictions. Sure. And so many of those addictions are easy to hide, you know, maybe not the overeating, but but a lot of these, a lot of these addictions are easy to hide and people often don't know it's even going on, but then they can also be so secretive. And so families, a lot of the times have no idea even what's going on. So when you've got a family who really, you know, it's like one or two people in the family know, what do you, what do you do in terms of, you know, people are like, well, we want to protect their dignity or we don't want to spread or mm -hmm. talk about things or, you know, stuff like that. When it comes to like a pornography issue, or there's so much shame around it and people just want to like, oh, I know they have issues. We better not say anything or let's step back. Like, what do you say in terms of families really all being on the same page or what do you do with something like that? Well, I thrive in looking parents in the eyes. I don't care if their success level is one that I'll never obtain. Maybe they have a doctorate in something I don't, but I can look them in the eye and tell them, I'm not telling you this because I read it. I'm telling you this because I lived it. Every single person starts at this point. And if you don't do anything. If you as a family are not the disruption to change the course or the path of your loved one, then something else or someone will. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately for most, it will end up being a judge. Maybe for some it's, it's death, but you know, even when you get to that point, every parent's like, Oh no, 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 not us. And so to give you the honest answer at times, it's just planting that seed and telling them, Hey, you know what? That's fine. But I can promise you in the next couple of weeks or in the next couple of months, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. You may have this experience. And then you're going to see the progression of this. And then you just wait. And then that phone rings again. And they had to go through that process. But hopefully we can catch and stop it before it gets too bad or irreversible. Right. But it's sometimes a process that they just have to go through. Well, and I, I would say this is the absolute mantra for our company. And it is our secrets keep us sick. Mm -hmm. So if you think that there's a way that your loved one can get healthy, 
when their support system isn't fully informed or aware or all on the same page of what is actually going on, you are wrong. Yeah. You are wrong. Yeah. And you will allow that to eat away your loved one. It will gain traction and momentum as long as it's a secret. Yeah. And you know how many young, young men I've worked with that have pornography addictions, maybe they're vaping and drinking with their friends on the weekend, binge drinking, and it's getting out of control that tell me this. I know my mom knows she caught me mm-hmm. or I even know my dad found that, that alcohol in my backpack or my car. All of a sudden there's this awkwardness because no one's talking. They're not even addressing it with them. They're not even having truth telling conversations. They have no safe place in which to talk about this. So what happens? That poor individual knows they're doing something wrong. But now his parents aren't even willing to recognize it or it becomes awkward between the mom and dad. And so now it just creates even more confusion for this poor individual. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, it's so harmful to them because they're like, wait, I thought you could see I'm like burning to the ground here. And apparently my smoke signal is not getting to you. Like you don't even care. Yeah. And usually it's because the parent is fearful or they really don't want to accept that that what is going on is going on. But that ultimately causes what the person is suffering from to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. That's so interesting. It's almost like that distress cry goes unanswered when, when parents aren't willing to have these, like you said, these truth telling conversations or intervene and really stop the, you know, at least pause it, at least give them an opportunity, give them an exit an off ramp. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a table, there's a chance to do something at this point. And so parents, you know, parents that know are not powerless parents that know actually can have some influence. I mean, yes, you're, you're unable to like choose for someone, but you can certainly speak up and unify and align. And I, I, I like what you're saying. It's, it's not that you need to run out and broadcast this to the whole family about what's going on, yeah. but you can't be complicit in the lie. You can't be complicit in the secrecy. If you know, you've got to be able to keep those lines open and talk about it. Well, and I would say, especially again, in our culture, when that happens, it teaches that person who's hurting, everything I know is not real. That's not true. They're not doing what they said they would. They're not rescuing me. They're not hearing me. They're not helping me. And so it almost reinforces that behavior as, you know, my life is in shambles. Like I do need to, to self-medicate in this way or whatever it is. And so it, the harm is just exponential. We also created our online courses for that purpose that a mother or father who's contemplating this, and maybe they don't want to go announce it to the world. They can walk through this process and someone's going to give them the truth. Yes. Beautiful. So when they call me that, you know, in our courses, we've put them for, they're affordable to go on. They're easy to watch. And every time someone completes that course and calls me, this is what said, I'm ready. I am terrified, but I'm ready Wow. because it's prepared them for what's going to have to happen. Every week at my gym, I watch people come in. They're nervous. They're out of shape. You know, they don't even have gym clothes on. They have like old t-shirts that have been wadded up. You can tell are wrinkly and they walk in, they meet the trainer and they start figuring this process out, right? Eventually that trainer teaches them the tools they need. And guess what? They get going on their own. That trainer's no longer with them. We're just trying to help people take those first few awkward steps when they feel uncomfortable, they feel out of their element. Because most families, once they learn how to do this and what it's going to take and maybe the ways they're affecting it, good or bad, then they can thrive together. But we just try to help coach them through that first little process. I love it. I love it. So even if, you know, 
your loved one is not struggling with a drug or alcohol addiction, I'm guessing these principles apply equally for any type of addictive behaviors or patterns that are just so destructive, compulsive patterns, right? Can I share something? Because your expertise is is in that sexual betrayal. Uh I, I will just testify myself from my experience. There's no more powerful drug that's destroying families and lives than pornography and sex addiction. I'm sorry to tell you that. There are far more alcoholics and meth addicts who are healing and getting help and recovering than there are those who are have sexual addictions who are hiding in the dark. Many reasons. There's less resources available for them. There's still a stigma behind it. Now society's like, oh, you're an alcoholic, you go to AA. Everyone knows the process. But there's this stigma and this weird so true. mystery behind the sex addiction. So does it apply to everything? 100%. Yeah. But why I state that is because every single one of those people who have the sexual addictions is only a matter of time till they need something else to help with the shame and guilt. It always has cross addictions into other things, prescription medications, sleeping medications, alcohol. And it's only a matter of time until this evolves to something much worse. Yep. I agree, Danny. That's been my experience as well is that unless they get some help, unless something changes, the numbing is is non-negotiable. They will numb. Yeah. They will. Well, every person, you know, like myself, my my story, I told you 90% of it was abusing pain medication. It was the last 10% when all of a sudden it moved to illicit drugs and my situation got desperate and it all came to a head really quick. When that happens, everyone can see, oh my gosh, there's, an, there's a problem. There's no denying it. Yeah. But if I have a sex addiction and it progresses and now it's inappropriate images, it's underage girls, it starts to progress to things it shouldn't. Who knows about it? Right. No right. one. Well, you can no lie to yourself about it. about it. Right. So it's harder so for easy. a family to be like, oh my gosh, we have got to do something. So if it is known that your loved one has an addiction to pornography, has a sexual addictions, I can promise you right now that what you know is less than 10% of what's really going on. It's just what you caught them with. It's just where you, where they got sloppy and sloppy and dropped some crumbs. So if there's any recognizable problem, you better understand that it is a desperate time to do something. You need to get help. Yeah. Tell people how they can find you guys. Yep. You can just head to our website, um, yourlivingproof.com. You That's Y-O-U-R, yep. Your Living Proof. You can find us on Instagram at Your Living Proof, on Facebook at Your Living Proof, but the website's probably the best place to go. Yeah, and we have our own podcast, the Your Living Proof podcast. So yeah, any they, of those. Yeah. No, you guys are great. I love your stuff. I follow you guys on social media. It's how I found you. And I just, I love following you and seeing what you guys are doing. So much of your work, I mean, it, like you said, it, it's just so aligned with what with what I'm doing as well. And we need each other. And I'm grateful yep. that you guys add this, this family piece because I agree that the family can be the biggest resource and the biggest hindrance. We've got to help people utilize and really just mobilize the power that's right there in front of them. Yep. Amen. I love so it. true. I love it. Guys, you're awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast. I love what you're doing and uh, we'll keep in touch. Thanks so yeah, much. Well, thanks for having us. My Thank wife you. and I think you're a giant. You address the elephant in the room that other people aren't willing to do so. So we literally look at you as a giant and we respect <laughs> you for what you do. So thank yes, you. Yes, thank you. Likewise, guys. Thanks so much. Danny and Emily, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. You can find them on their website at yourlivingproof.com. 
And of course, they're very active on social media and I will make sure that links to everything are in the show notes so you can find them easily. Follow them, give them a follow and a shout out. They're just fantastic people. And hopefully you can tell how great they are just from this interview. But uh, thanks again for the great work you guys are doing. And if you want to find more information on what I'm doing and get some support in rebuilding trust and find past episodes of this podcast and get additional support for your marriage and family, you can find me on my website, fromcrisistoconnection.com. I'm also on social media and I've links to all of that in the show notes. And I've also got a free guide to end marriage arguments that you can download. And that's in the show notes as well. Come say hi, drop me a little line. Let me know how you're doing. I'd love to know what's working for you, what you need. I always respond. I appreciate all your great support over the last few years doing this podcast. Please share it with other people. Let other people know about these great resources. I'm so grateful for the guests that joined me and all the good that they're doing out in the world. Thanks, guys. I look forward to joining you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.